0: This celebration should be the very pulse of our hearts every day, and too often it is not. But we are thankful that you give us times and seasons that help us to remember you and to seek your face more thoroughly, more deeply, with more conviction and care, and we pray that that would translate now from this morning and this time to tomorrow and to the week and to the month and to the years ahead of us. God, we are grateful that not only we have gathered together as the body of Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ was was hung on a cross and crucified and dead and buried and raised to new life so that he could call all sorts of people to his great kingdom and now he is building a new people and a new body and we are one iteration of that and we join in him god thank you that we can celebrate newness of life in christ and we pray for the body wherever it's gathered this morning We pray for Cleveland especially. We pray, God, that you would make the preaching of the resurrected Jesus Christ the heartbeat of the churches of this city. God, we know there are churches here in this town, not even far from us, that think the resurrection of your Son is of no import. Of no consequence. And yet we know that without His rising, there is no church. And so, God, I pray for those churches who are tempted to throw away the great and powerful mystery of the resurrection of Jesus, that You would bring them back to the truth. I pray for those churches here in Cleveland that are standing on that testimony The faith once for all delivered to the saints. That you would give them conviction to not stray from it in days ahead. And give us faithfulness this morning to hear your word, or in my case to preach your word, to be faithful to it and to do as it commands us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're taking a little break from a sermon series in the book of James this morning so that we can look at a passage from the book of Romans, uh, as Travis just read Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. You know, sometimes in life we face challenges that aren't so much a cause of not uh, knowing what to do but understanding why. And sometimes understanding the why is the key to understanding or, or getting done the things that we need to do. Uh, uh, sometimes we know the right thing. We, we, we have in mind the things that are important or valuable or significant. And, and uh, on some level, we want to do them. But because we don't understand properly why we're supposed to be doing them, we, we fail to do them. Uh, on some level, the depth and the significance is lost on us. Um, we don't see the underlying importance, or the dots just aren't mentally connected for us in a way that allows us to, to move forward. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I know it, it happens for me. Um, I, I'm told what to do, or it's intuitive what to do, but because the why of it hasn't really sunk in, I just Failed to do it. Well, I think that that is um, a little bit of what Paul is getting at in Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. And, and, and if we could summarize what Paul wants us to hear, uh, it would be this. We, can, we We, who are Christians, can master sin because Jesus has mastered death. And, and Paul wants us to understand this. And so he points to three things we ought to know before turning to the one thing that we ought to do. I think by way of, of establishing that underlying why that kind of empowers us to do what we are called to do. So Paul points to three things we ought to know that lead to one Thing we ought to do. But before we we hit that, the backdrop here in in verses 1 through 2, we need to kind of understand because it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, the the opening question might seem odd, especially if you're not familiar with the book, and we're cutting into the middle of an extended argument here. And Paul has been making the case that Jesus' salvation is a free gift that's extended to unworthy sinners. That's called grace. If you hear Christians talking about grace, that's that's what the Bible means by it. Getting something we don't deserve. In this case, salvation. And Paul has said that Jesus' grace is so amazing that no matter how sinful we are, his gift is bigger. More sin, more grace. But Paul anticipates an objection to this truth. Wouldn't continuing to sin more and more just mean that Jesus gets to display even more grace? And wouldn't that just demonstrate how remarkable he is? It's as if someone is saying, come on Paul, this can't really be true. If it were true, wouldn't the right thing to do to be just sin and sin and sin? That's ridiculous, Paul, and so are your ideas. And Paul responds, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, the very notion is ridiculous to Paul. Jesus' grace is not a cause to sin more, but a cause to sin less. How could we live like that, Paul asked rhetorically. And so he's going to buttress that assumption that Jesus' death is a cause, even though it pours grace on us and pours forgiveness on us, it is a cause to sin less. And he's going to buttress that point by looking at the underlying rationale. He points to three things that he says Christians know. Three things that he says Christians know by way of explain how we handle this circumstance. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, this doesn't sound like much of an Easter message. And I'll admit, it's a non-traditional passage of Scripture uh, to speak from. But, But there is a reason why this passage is valuable to us on Easter Sunday. Because Easter is the day that we especially celebrate that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, God made man, rose from the dead after having given his life as a substitute for the sins of all who trust in him. And because he took our place, because he took our place, in making his case, then, that Paul is telling us that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have present tense implications. That means if you're a Christian... You can live this life with a certain confidence. And it means if you're not a Christian, you are not only missing out on the very real eternal consequences of the resurrection, but you're missing out on the power of the resurrection that could be motivating your life, moving your life even now. We sometimes forget these three things that Paul brings up in the passage. Paul assumes that they are things that every Christian should know. And I don't want to uh, dismiss the future tense of our salvation. It's incredibly important. The eternal state and where we will spend eternity is incredibly important. But sometimes we neglect the present tense state of our salvation... And we live lives that are powerless as a result. These three things that, that Paul wants to point to that, that we know are at the end of the day a part of the gospel. They're part of the good news. They're not the entirety of it, but they are parts of it. And these three things answer why continuing in sin is not. Christian option. The first one, Paul says that we know that we have been baptized into death. We've been baptized into death. He hits this in verses 3 through 5. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When Paul says, do you not know, it's evident that he assumes they do know. He wants to get his readers' attention. He wants them to focus in, so he puts in a question for in and what Christians should know What was so standard of Christian teaching that Paul could assume that these Christians living in Rome that he had, by and large, never met before, he had never been to Rome. They knew this basic fact that Christians have been baptized into Christ and they've been baptized into his death. And he may say, yeah, 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 we we know, we've been baptized, we became Christians, and we got wet. And and that's true, but it's not exactly probably what Paul meant. Uh, Leon Morris, in his commentary on Romans, puts it this way. I, I rarely quote this much length, but Morris just nails it out of the park. He says, we may perhaps miss something of what he, Paul, is saying Because for us, baptized evokes liturgical associations. It points to a comforting and inspiring piece of ceremonial. But in the first century, while the verb could denote this ceremony, and Paul certainly means that here, to baptize evoked associations of violence. It meant immerse rather than dip. It was used, for example, of people being drowned or of ships being sunk. Josephus used it metaphorically of crowds who flooded into Jerusalem and wrecked the city. It was quite in keeping with this that Jesus referred to his death as baptism. When it is applied to Christian initiation... We ought not to think in terms of gentleness and inspiration. It means death. Death to a whole way of life. It is this that is Paul's point here. Christians are people who have died, and their baptism emphasizes that death. He is saying that it is quite impossible... For anyone who understands what baptism means to acquiesce cheerfully in a sinful life, the baptized have died to all that. So this is sort of basic Christianity. Christianity 101, if you will. Christians have died. They've died to their old way of life. This would have been really obvious to Christians in Paul's lifetime in the first century. Every Christian, for all intents and purposes, was a convert. There weren't many who were born into Christian households and grew up knowing Christ and loving Christ and never walking away from Him. That was a a rarity, and and certainly in the early years after Jesus, there there were none of those. But if that's you if that's your story, you grew up knowing Christ and loving Christ and never walked away from him, know that you too still have died. Or you're not really a Christian, you just think you are. But you have died. It might not be to your old way of life, per se, but it is the old way of this world, the old way the people of this world tend to carry on. It is a, a death to your own self-interest, to your own self-pleasure. It's a death to all the things that you would have been pursuing had you never heard of Jesus. And Paul's underlying assumption, it's not even his point here, is that if you haven't died, you are not a Christian. That sounds a bit dreary, not very uplifting. It's a holiday, right? Get on with it. But, but, but stay with me for a moment because it is, it is building somewhere. When you become a Christian, when you are converted, you die. And, and Paul says, you know, you Romans, you Christians, that this was for a purpose. He says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus was raised, Paul says, on Easter, on the first day of the week, through the glory of the Father, Jesus rose from the dead. And in the same way, we can have newness of life. Walking is very close to living. It's not the same thing, but it's, it's very, very close for our intents and purposes. In a world in which most people moved from point A to point B by foot. They didn't have cars. And unless you had some means, you didn't have an animal to ride around on. You certainly didn't have someone to take you places. There was no first century Uber unless you were the king. So how you walked was how you conducted your life. It was how you went about your business, quite literally. So for the Christian, the way we go about our business is with a life that is distinctively new. It is rejuvenated. It is, it is restored. It's whole. It is cut from a completely different cloth than the life we had before. It has new goals. It has new aims. It has new purposes. It has new interests. It has new desires. And as if to hammer this point home, Paul says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So, through Christ's death, which was a physical very literally being hung up on a cross. Nonetheless, that death, as real as a death can be, was for sin. And, and he defeated sin. And, and so in a similar way, being as that we're united with Christ, we die to sin. Let, let me put it in this terms, uh, A lot of people try to hitch their star, we say, to a celebrity or at least someone that we think is going somewhere. Uh, They figure if they connect themselves to that person, then even when things are looking bad, when that person rises to the top, they are going to rise with them, right? I was reading this morning, there was an article on, uh, I think, CNN about uh, sort of the guy, and I'm forgetting his name now, who's essentially the head of. Of Trump's security, Donald Trump's security, and he was a New York police officer, and uh, he saw, he he happened to be in the same area, one of Trump's ex-wives, security detail, and he realized that guy looked small and weak compared to him, and he thought to himself, the real money is not in being a police officer, it's being in, you know, private security. If this guy, this little weakling over here can do this, I can do this. And so he had a connection, put in a word uh, with uh, Trump, and he got a one-month trial, and uh, he, he passed that, I guess. And he kind of became Trump's muscle. And um, over time, he's just been, I, I guess, and people say about him, uh, even going back to when he was a kid, he's just always been a very, very loyal individual. And we, we kind of sense in watching this president, he seems to really value loyalty, um, and, and this guy's been with Trump for 18 years now, and he's still working in the, the White House, even though he has a, a secret service staff, uh, this guy has almost become a, a confidant of Donald Trump. Now, so re- you get the idea that this guy, he, he, he hitched his star to Donald Trump when Donald Trump was just a, a, just a real estate guy, you know, and, and now it travels all around the world with Donald Trump, with through reality star and and president and, and and things like that. So we, we get this this sense and what Paul is saying here is that if you are in Christ, you have sort of hitched your star to Jesus Christ. Even even when you go through the bad things with a person you've kind of attached yourself to, you and you persevere through those, you reap the benefits when they come out good later on. And it's sort of that, that idea, we were tied as Christians to Jesus on Good Friday when he was hung on the cross and when he was taken to the tomb and when all the chips were down and seemed against him, we ride his star through the weekend and through the, the blackness of death and we rise up with him on Sunday But if you don't go through death, you don't gain new life. But Paul says, you know this. You know this. You know that you've been baptized into death. And it has a promise. It has a promise that just as Christ awakened a new life, you are designed and purposed for a new manner of living in this world. The second thing we know, Paul says, is we know we've been crucified with Christ. Verses 6 through 8. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, this is a similar point, but he but he's building on to it just a little bit. And that's part partly because Paul is hammering his message home. He really wants to stick this in. But this very slight difference in his point here leads to some a very different application for us. Paul says we've not just been not just died, but you know, so that was Christianity 101, this is Christianity 102, you know that you've been crucified with him. And really, one step further, it's not so much that you've been crucified with him as the old body of sin. Essentially, Paul is asking you to paint this picture. Imagine your body Hanging on a tree, hanging on that cross with Jesus, only it's not your body per se. It's, it's all of the cravings and, and the lusts and the longings of this body. What Paul calls the body of sin. I mean, we, we can't do much without these bodies, right? So there's a pretty tight connection here between our, our physical body and, and the way we wind up sinning. So take this body. Take all the evil thoughts my mind has thought, all the evil things my hand has grabbed, all the wicked places my feet have trod, all the poisonous tastes my mouth has tasted, the noxious fumes my nose has inhaled, the itches my nails have scratched and stick them up on the cross. That's where they went. The body of sin was hung up on the cross. In fact, this body of sin took the form of an olive-skinned Jew named Jesus Bar-Joseph of Nazareth. And as he hung, so did I. As he hung, so did you, if you believe. Now, Paul says the purpose of that body of sin hanging up on the cross was that sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin was as much nothing as the limp and lifeless body of Jesus Which didn't flinch when a Roman soldier shoved a spear into his side and the blood and water flowed at 3 p.m. one afternoon outside of Jerusalem. It was nothing. And the upshot of that is that we are no longer, Paul says, enslaved to sin. Did you know that you were a slave? To sin. Sin is your master. You do its bidding. When it says go, you go. When it says stay, you stay. You might protest. I'm a PGP. I'm a pretty good person. So the phrase we like to say, right? We never like to say I'm a good guy. We say I'm a, I'm a pretty good person, right? We ask have to massage it a little bit. I do nice stuff. I'm not not perfect, but I'm not a slave to sin. No, outside of Christ, you have to understand, and again, Paul is just appealing to things he just can assume these Christians he's never met knows. Sadly, I'm not sure we, we can say that we know these things. He says, before you were a Christian, you were a slave to sin. In other words, you had no other option. Just like a slave does not have the option whether to, to obey the master or not. That is not functionally an option. Obey, not obeying the master is going to result in extreme punishment or death. Disobeying is not an option for the slave. So the slave does the master's bidding. And you say that's ridiculous. I do good things. I know people who do good things, and they're not Christians. But the Bible is absolutely clear on this point. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. 6 And whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. In other words, the things that we do that we would say, those are pretty good things, those are nice things, they're generous things. But yeah, but if they are done out of a motivation that is not seeking to put all things up under the glory of God, then they're done with the wrong motivation. And that motivation taints the action. It's no different than when you... uh, um, you, you buy someone a, a cup of coffee or you take them out for lunch, not because you care about them and want to do something nice, but you're looking for a, a favor in return. If you do something with the wrong motives, it taints the entire action, doesn't it? And what Scripture says unequivocally is that if you are not acting out of the motivation of faith and seeking the glory of God, your action is tainted by sin. And so Paul says... You were a slave to sin. But, if you're dead, you're no longer a slave. Because your master has no claim over you anymore. The old slave master can, can, can beat his slave to death and then order him to get up and, and work, but the slave will not respond. Death severs the master-slave relationship. And so, Paul gives us this promise. If we, the one who has died, has been set free from sin. Sin is no longer in charge. It's no longer the master. And there's a promise and a hope. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will live with him. So first, being hitched to Christ's death allows us to live this life in a newness of life. Now, it is the life, the essence of life itself that our entire previous existence was death and now, in Christ, our existence can be one that's characterized by life. But here's the third thing that Paul assumes, Christianity 103, that you know We know that we will not in the end be dead. Verses 9 through 11. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus So Jesus will never die again. He died. He conquered death. Death no longer has dominion over him. The word have dominion is basically the the verb form of Lord. The the word we would call Lord Jesus Christ. If you could turn that into a verb, that's the word that Paul is using, and it means to, to have mastery, to rule, to have authority over something. And on the cross, death was allowed to have mastery over Jesus. I say allowed because Jesus volunteered. As, As he himself said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It's John 10. And so he did. He took it back up again and In so doing, he ended death's mastery. Jesus died once. He he died only once. He needs never to die again. He is not a sacrifice which is offered over and over again, as some sects would tell you. He died once, and his one death to sin was great enough to pay for all sins for all time, he never needs to die again, and he never can die again. He died to sin, and he lives to God. And so now, the Christian who has fixed his star to Christ, whose body of sin is crucified, is also now dead to sin and alive to God. Insofar as one is in Christ, one is alive. To God, And this means, if nothing else, that death no longer has mastery over us. If Jesus rose, we who are in Christ will raise. If, if, as Jesus lives eternally in glory, so those who are in Jesus will live eternally in glory. Whatever Jesus accomplished, we will have. And so Paul has moved now from our freedom from sin to our freedom from the consequence of sin, which is eternal death. We will not die. So Paul says, if you know these three basic facts, and I know that you know them, he says, if you know that you, would, you died when you converted to Christ, and you know that your sin was nailed up on the cross, And if you know that you have been freed from the dominion and mastery of sin and death, then rather than continuing in sin, we must master sin. And he makes this point in verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So, the big command here is let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to obey its passions. And then he kind of explains what that means in the next couple sentences. Here's the thing. There is clearly the opportunity for Christians to allow sin to reign in their mortal bodies such that Paul has to tell these Christians, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. It's possible to allow it. Here's the the difference in the cross. Death and sin are no longer your master if you're in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean you can't go looking for employment. Employment. And too often, that is exactly what we do as Christians. Don't let sin reign, have mastery, lord it over you in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. How do I do that, Paul? What does that mean? He says, well, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. What does that mean, Paul? Well, it's using language we don't use much anymore. Although it's really important language for understanding the scriptures, it's really important language for understanding the church, but also for understanding what Paul is talking about here. The body, again, the body being this this, this uh, physical form by which we conduct our actions, and so we we carry out all of our sins in this physical form is composed of body parts that's the members a member in the you know old sense of the word member is a body part When we talk about the church and we talk about its members it's because the because scripture talks about the church as a body with body parts that's where we get this sort of terminology paul's using that same terminology to talk about our our physical form, and it's bent towards sin. And here's what we do. We have a tendency to present our members, our body parts, to become tools of unrighteousness. Rather, Paul says, you need to present your tools to God as though... uh, present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. When I used to work in retail management, um, when a shift would start for a new employee, they would the first thing that they were told, they would clock in and they would come to the office or they'd come find me wherever I was. They would present themselves to me. You know, okay, what is, what is my task for my shift? what is my responsibility, where where do you have me working, am I I helping the the customers, am I in the back room, am I stocking shelves, so the first thing, if they're a decent employee and most of them were, the first thing they do, they punch in, they they come find the manager and they say, what is it that I'm supposed to do, and it's also an opportunity, the manager makes sure, you know, they they have the proper uniform on, they dress properly, are they You know, they're not violating any of the rules of the business. And they're ready to work. They're presenting themselves to the boss. They are offering themselves up ready for service. And we do that with our lives, whether we recognize it or not. We offer our body parts ourselves as we, we've been freed from the mastery and dominion of the, the, the awful master, sin, and yet it's like we've left the plantation, and we say, you know what, I'm bored. I need something to do. And so I march back to the plantation, and I ask for something to do. I'm free, but I'm allowing myself to be put under my old master. This is an active thing. Whether we recognize it or not, we are actively either presenting ourselves and our constituent parts as offerings to sin or we are presenting them and ourselves to God for the sake of righteousness there's not an in between there there's not a there's not a third way there's not another option there and so this is active in every moment of our day we are making a decision consciously or unconsciously if we're honest, but usually unconsciously, right? About whom we are going to serve. And so, if our goal is to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, such that we obey its passions, then we have to be actively seeking to present ourselves to God. God as those who have been brought from death to life and are members to God as instruments for righteousness. If our conscious mode of operation and our habit isn't, God, how do you want to use my hands and my feet and my whole self today for a tool to accomplish your righteous and glorious ends? then you are de facto saying, sin, I'm bored. What is it you've got for me today? How would you like me to handle the things this world is throwing at me right now? Because I've got to serve somebody and it might as well be you. We're free. But that freedom gives us the opportunity now to choose our master in a manner of speaking it's not a perfect analogy and Paul will admit that later but there's a sense in which there's some truth in there that now that we are free we don't become prisoners of righteousness per se as much as we are able to choose whom we are going to serve today Paul says look Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. If Jesus died to sin, and if death, which sin produces, has no mastery over Jesus, then the upshot of that is it has no mastery over us if we are in Christ. Why? Because we are under grace, not law. Mean this, if our, lives, if our lives consisted in an attempt to flee sin by methodically and scrupulously obeying all the rules and falling flat on our face over and over again, sin would most definitely be our master. But because we've been bought... By Christ's grace. It never can fully dominate us. Because Christ's grace gives us the freedom to serve a new master. It gives us the freedom to fall flat on our face. And know that we're not condemned. And it gives us the freedom to enjoy the pleasure of our Savior. And so we are under God's free gift. And not under a law that condemns us. And so we can break free of sin. And there are, there are individuals who don't know Jesus, who don't understand why they don't have mastery over the things of this world. They, they, they are doing things. They are making mistakes. They are running in circles. They are finding errors. And they don't understand why they don't have mastery of those things. And they know that those things are destroying them. Some of them don't. Some of them know that those things, those things are just fun. And some of them are fun. Um, But some of them know those things are destroying them from within. They don't understand, why they don't have mastery over them. And Jesus came to save us from the mastery of sin. And that has future implications. Those future implications are wonderful. That Christ will return, that he will judge the living and the dead, and we will enter into the eternal and glorious and happy presence of our Savior if we are his followers and his disciples. And that is a wonderful thing, but let's not miss that it has a consequence and a reality for the present day right now, which is that we don't have to live in the old way anymore. In fact, we're commanded to live differently, and the empowerment of that is in knowing the reality that Christ has put all that to death, and to live any other way would just be absurd. It would be every bit as absurd as a slave in the antebellum south, watching the Union troops come over the horizon, Destroying a Confederate army that he knew his master was serving in and sitting there and realizing he was free, there was no one, and yet staying there because he was bored, because he was weak. Because he still longed for a life that should have died when his master died. That would be absurd, right? And yet, isn't that how we too often live our lives? We go back to the the garbage heap of our old life. And the solution, Paul says, is to be offering ourselves, our whole selves to God, our individual members of ourselves, as tools of righteousness rather than unrighteousness. Clearly, that has to be a conscious decision on our part. And every moment, every day, is an opportunity to choose whether we are presenting our our hands, our feet, our minds, our hearts, our, our everything to serve sin or to serve Christ. If you don't know Christ, you are still a slave to sin. And yet there's a Christ who wants to free you from that. Do you receive that gift? If you've, and if you are a Christian, we need not live anymore like we are slaves. Because you are free. And you need to know that the power that you feel that sin has over you is a power that you have chosen to give it. Not a power that it has any right to anymore. Jesus rose on Easter to bring sinners into the kingdom of heaven. Yes. Yes but also as a down payment on that and to give us new life even now in the present tense. Let's pray. Father, we really know that we (laughs) fail and flail at this life. Far too often because we neglect the basics of our faith. We neglect the reality of what you did on that cross, that you you didn't just die to get us to heaven, but you died to make us holy. You died to free us from the power of sin. You died to offer us A better master. May we never sacrifice our present calling in your son Jesus for the sake of the future reality only. May we honor you with our entire lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.